Before we get started, a message from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies wholeheartedly believes that if you get the right people, the results will follow. They set themselves apart with a forward-thinking culture that empowers their people and fosters loyal partnerships. They are also proud sponsors, partners, and super fans of this podcast. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. I think you know by now that week after week after week, we try to fuel you with a little bit of inspiration and a little bit of encouragement, a few next steps that you can take to continue the journey forward into the headwind, into the, into the challenges that are indeed part of life. You're going to hear an epic story of overcoming today. I was told by several friends and family members that I needed to read a book called High Achiever. And of course, I did what most of us do. I ignored them. I ignored them again and again and again until finally my beautiful sister-in-law, Chrissy, handed me a copy and said, John, read this book. I read High Achiever and I was profoundly moved by it. So after I got to the final page, I reached out to our producer, Amy, and I said, Amy, I want you to get Tiffany Jenkins onto this show. I don't care what it's going to require. Get her on her show. We need to share this message with her audience. So have you ever felt like there are obstacles that you just cannot hurdle, that you've made too many mistakes that you'll never be forgiven for, that you've fallen way too far down to ever possibly pull yourself up or be accepted by anybody else? Well, my friends, if you or someone you know or love has ever answered yes to any one of those questions, have them and you yourself tune into this broadcast today because Tiffany's story is one that is going to fill you with hope, with encouragement, with possibility, and with the truth that in spite of where we've been and the mistakes we've made, the best even still is yet to come. Now, listen, I, I could spend the next 15 minutes telling her story and filling you with inspiration and reminding you that you can overcome too. But rather than me doing any more talking, I just want to bring in this incredible lady, this overcomer, this teacher. I think she's got a lot to share with you today. And so I'm going to get out of the way and introduce to you an author, a mother, an overcomer, a high achiever, but someone who understands ultimately where their value is found these days. It's an important message for all of us to learn. So grab your journals. Grab those pens, clear out the background noise, turn off the laptop for a moment, just listen to the voice of a teacher. Her name is Tiffany Jenkins. Tiffany, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here and I love your family already. I don't know well, They're behind me on the screen. They're all better looking than I am. So I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you're getting a, a glimpse over my shoulder at my kids and wife and family members. Unfortunately, we're not here to talk about them. We're here to talk about you and your story for the few folks who somehow do not already follow you, they do not yet know about the book that we're gonna spend a lot of our time talking about. Would you share briefly about the work that you're do doing today? Sure. I try to use humor to bring awareness to subjects that people feel weird talking about. Um, I'm a recovering drug addict. I have seven and a half years clean. 
And I didn't think that a life after addiction would be possible, but somehow I was given a second chance and I am trying to make the most of it so that all the terrible things I did weren't in vain. Um, And I have an incredible following of just human people who, like me, have no idea what they're doing in life, but they're trying their best. And um, I, I, I feel so grateful and so confused at how this all happened. And um, I'm honored to have the platform that I do. You know, when you hear about someone who's got millions of followers, you imagine one type of personality. When you think about someone who uh, was an addict and spent years in prison, you think of one type of personality. You don't fit those boxes. You're completely outside the box. You, you live perfectly in your own. And so we're going to talk about that right now because the invitation then is for the rest of us to do likewise, for us to figure out who we are, what really matters, and then to take the next best step forward in our messy, zigzaggy lives. So Tiffany, let's let's back the train up even before the best-selling book, before the blog goes crazy, before everything else. Talk about childhood. What was life like for you growing up as a little kid? It's so funny because what I pictured life like while growing up was one thing. And now looking back, I see there were, it was, it's a little different. Um, my father was an alcoholic and my mom was a bartender, which was perfect. They were like match made in heaven. Peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. I grew up around parties. I spent a lot of time in bars as a kid. Um, my sister and I thought it was super fun. We would like play the jukebox and play pool while my parents drank. Um, and my mom and dad ended up divorcing when I was around seven years old. And shortly after, my mother ended up marrying a police officer, which was like the exact opposite of what my dad was. So we went from having like this wild, fun childhood to structure, super structured, Um, which was a good thing. But it was also, it took some getting used to. My parents were, my stepdad and my mom were gone a lot. So my sister and I were kind of latchkey kids. We would let ourselves in to the house and, you know, there was nobody there really to ensure that we are doing our homework or give us healthy foods. I would, we'd often have to call up to the bar where my mom worked and be like, Hey, pears just hit me, you know, what, like, because that's where they spent a lot of their time was at the bar up the road, but they were wonderful. They were wonderful. It's just, we were left on our own a lot. And that with that came, I think my overeating phase, I ate a lot because nobody was there to regulate what I was eating. So I got overweight and then the bullying started. Talk about the bullying. I think it's an experience that many of us witnessed around us. Many of us witnessed firsthand because we experienced it. And it's something that for those of us who have kids, whether in grade school, middle school, high school, it's still going on at way too high of a level and it's incredibly destructive. So talk about what bullying felt like for you. For me, I was, I was super tall for my age and I was overweight and I had glasses and I was loud and, um, people would make fun of me, you know, and so I developed kind of like this sense of humor as a defense mechanism, because I felt like if I made fun of myself first before anybody else had an opportunity to, um, it would feel like I had one up on them. You know, you can't call me fat because I've already called myself fat three times during this conversation. I know that you know that I know that I'm fat. Um, When you tell yourself something enough, you start to believe it. And so I was the ugly fat friend who never got a boyfriend. I was the loud, goofy one who people look to for humor. Um, And so I always felt out of place everywhere. And even I 
tried out for the cheerleading squad as a joke. Um, my, somebody bet me money to try out and I, I made it on the cheerleading squad somehow. And I don't know, I have no clue how still to this day, but for the first time in my life, I started exercising and eating right. But no matter how fit and attractive I became on the outside, I still felt like that fat, weird, nerdy kid on the inside. Not only do you make the team and you fall in love with being fit and uh, seemingly attractive on the outside, you become the captain. I mean, you, you become. <laughs> Thanks in for the bringing world it up. Of, of we adults, we look at kids like you and we're like, oh, she's got it put together. She's got it figured out. She's successful. She's a straight A student, captain of the team. Talk about that. Yeah. I was, I always looked up to cheerleaders because back then they were like the, they epitomize, is that the word? Epitome? Yeah, okay. I'm so smart. Don't go any longer than words. that word. That's the end of my uh, vocabulary. Like that. <laughs> Seven letters and beyond that, I start getting lost. So no more than that. <laughs> they were the epitome of what success looked like at that age, you know, popular, pretty captain. Right. And so I, I had this label, but inside I felt like at any moment, the kids at the lunch table were going to wake up and realize, wait a minute, what's this nerd doing sitting with us? I never felt like I fit in because my personality was so different than theirs. And no matter whether I was dating the football player or hanging out with all the cheerleaders, I still felt out of place. Mm. And, you know, my parents were so proud of me. Everybody was proud of me, but I was searching for something. I, I don't know what it was. I was, it was attention from the opposite sex for a while. And then my senior year of high school, somebody offered me a sip of alcohol. And up until that point, I had always said no, but uh, on this particular night I said, yes. And that's, I always say it, that type of alcohol altered the course of my life forever because for the first time I felt numb. I didn't feel out of place or weird or awkward. I felt nothing and yeah. it was glorious. When I read that in your book, I was surprised that it took until you were 17 and a senior in high school to have your first drink for numerous reasons. But one of them is that you grew up in bars. Yeah. You grew up a daughter of an alcoholic, you grew up, a mother is a bartender, you grew up all around alcohol. I'm curious, why, why did it take until 17? The real question is, did you think that this might be a demon out there for you and you've been pushing it back as long as you could? Ne at the time, no, never. My stepfather, who was a police officer, used to come home and talk about addicts and alcoholics. And it was always, you know, the weird old guy living under a bridge, the homeless person on the side of the road. I never thought that it was me. Um, and I can't say that, you know, growing up with it made me not want to do it because I just thought it was normal. I just, it was what normal people did was drink. And I knew there would come a day where maybe I did that. Um, I just didn't think it was that soon. And honestly, the cheerleading is what kept me on track. You had to have a certain grade point average to stay on the squad. And I was hanging out with people who didn't party and didn't drink. And so it was never around me until it was. Yeah. Well, you went all in. You, uh, the pain subsided for a moment and um, you took a second drink soon after that to keep to talk about how it became an overriding addiction and part of your life. Yeah. Within three months of that night that I had a sip of alcohol, I completely dropped out of school. My senior year, I was so close to graduating, you know, and I just, I, I'm done because I wanted to hang out with people who were doing that. And so I would skip school and eventually I just stopped. I stopped going. I moved in with my dad um, and things escalated. It's like the guilt now 
was added to the picture, the guilt of disappointing my mom and my stepdad and of what might have been and, you know, my friends all graduating and me in someone's basement smoking weed and partying. And so the drinking turned into other things. And eventually I was introduced to my drug of choice, which was opiates, um, prescription pain medication. And again, it wasn't a drug to me. It didn't feel like a drug. I thought drugs were the harder things. Um, and so it started off as just fun and I would do a pill here and there, and then it became an everyday thing. And then there was a night where I was in so much physical pain for no reason. And my best friend said, have you had a pill today? And I said, no, not today. And she said, oh, well, that's probably why I bet if you get one, you'll be fine. And so I went and I got one and I was fine instantly. And that was when I stopped doing them for fun and started doing them to avoid that pain, physical pain. Did, was that a, an awakening for you? Did you realize, wow, this has gone way from partying into a wildly addictive personality and a lifestyle that I'd never imagined for myself just a year earlier? What's so crazy is that I still didn't think I was an addict at yeah. that point because I had no education. To me, um, I didn't realize that what an addict was. I didn't know about withdrawal. I didn't know about stealing. You know, when you become addicted physically, there's a new level of desperation. And the pain is so great when you don't have it that you want to do just about anything to not have to feel it. Right. And so with that level of desperation comes choices that you never thought that you would make. Um, my mom got very sick with cancer at age 45. And it was so sudden and so traumatic. And I didn't know how to cope with it. So um, you know, I, I amped up the amount of pills that I was taking. She passed away like five months after being diagnosed. And I found out I was getting a trust fund. Mm. And I like, I still had the wherewithal enough to know that, okay, if I got this money, I was going to kill myself. So I made the decision to go to a rehab in 2009. Um, but it wasn't because I wanted to, it was because I felt like it was the right thing to do. And there's a huge difference. Um, I was defiant at every single turn. Give me a favor, because I think many of us know what we should do in our marriage or singleness or addiction or savings or faith or you, you pick the flavor of the month. We, we, most of us know how to be pretty good people, but there is a difference between knowing and really desiring it. So would yeah. you share the difference between checking yourself in and really being fully all in to that process? Yeah. When you become dedicated to an idea or something that you want, um, if you, are, if you say to yourself, I want this more than anything, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to quit drugs. Only then, if you want it, will you be willing to fight and go through the pain and change every single thing about you. But if you're doing it because other people are telling you, or because you feel like it's the right thing to do, you're not going to have that drive and that will had you arrived at it yourself. And it, I'll like later on, in the story, it makes sense why I was so ready. But in 2009, I hadn't yet suffered the consequences of my actions. Yeah. And so there was no reason for me to want to stop. It was fun. It took me away from reality. But I felt like, oh, maybe this is what my mom would want. Maybe I need help. But I was defiant at every turn in the rehab. I thought I knew more than them. I thought that I could still drink and smoke and because the pills were my problem. And I wasn't willing to accept what they were saying. They were talking about God. I wasn't trying to hear that because I was still so hurt from the passing of my mom. 
And so I celebrated the night of my graduation by getting drunk from rehab. That was my celebration. And I, you know, I should have known then that I had a problem. Tiffany, um, how old were you when you graduated the first time? It was uh, two, 2009, 2010. So I want to say 22, 23, yeah. 24. I'm so you so graduate, you celebrate sobriety by getting hammered. And yeah. uh, eventually, as you unpack in the book, you're going to start dating a, a, a magnificent guy without mm. giving away his name. Would you tell us what he does? Yes. This man is a sheriff's deputy. <laughs> right. Yeah, for the county that I lived in. And I thought that this would be perfect for me. This is what I need in order to want to stay clean because my stepfather was a cop. I remember the structure he provided our family. I thought that if I was dating a cop, that there's no way I could relapse on pills because at this time I was drinking and partying, but I hadn't yet done pills. Um, but addiction doesn't care who you're dating. It doesn't care like what you want or you know if you have kids or anything like that. Addiction is so strong and eventually... After we had been dating for a little while, I was tempted and I gave in to the temptation. And I, I thought for sure he would know, he would see my eyes. He would know that I was high. Like I had my breakup speech prepared, but he didn't. The night I went over to his house, he had no clue that I was high on pills. And that was the night that I was like, oh my gosh, I can still have fun on the side from time to time yeah. while keeping up appearances. I'm a cop's girlfriend. I have my life together. Um, and that that ended up being a, a mistake, a tragic one. You know, when, when we think of addicts, we all have a vision of what that person looks like. Mm -hmm. And it's not the young Tiffany that I have seen pictures of or the officer that you were dating at the time. I mean, you're just a typical looking, beautiful young lady in a relationship, having the time of your life, seemingly no signs outwardly. And yet inwardly you're broken and, and you are about to make a decision with your boyfriend and, uh, it's going to, it's going to change the entire course of your life. Yeah. Big time. I would, I became an expert at manipulating and lying and I would prepare lies ahead of time. I'm going to need this lie for the lie that I'm going to tell tomorrow. And so my whole thought process was strategic because I didn't want him to know the truth of the monster that I was, but I wanted to maintain the life that we are living. He bought us a home. We got a puppy. I became friends with all the police officers on the force. Life was really great. But then the way that I administered my drugs was different. And I was doing it in a way that would leave marks and scars. And I was so desperate. I was spending every single penny. And then eventually I ended up running out of money. And so I started stealing things and breaking the law to support my habit. And it all came to a head in 2012 after two and a half years of dating. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I've, I know how the story ends. And by the way, for the listeners on the edge of their seat wondering, you know, well, she survived this thing. Yes, yeah, she survives. It's one of the most beautiful redemptive stories I've read. It's a beautiful, beautiful book, beautiful story, Tiffany, but gosh, you got to go down to the Valley in order to get there. So uh, let's talk about some of the mistakes you made that are going to eventually lead to uh, an inflection point in your life. Yeah, I was stealing items from around our house and I thought technically they were my things because I lived there too, or I didn't think it, I justified it that way. Um, but eventually I ended up, I don't know how much depth I should go into. I don't mind if people, I, I, 
I ended up stealing guns um, from my boyfriend to support my habit because at that point I, I was so broken and didn't care about consequences. I just wanted it to end. I prayed at this point, I was praying for death every single day. My first thought in the morning was how can I die today without making a big scene for him to have to clean up? And then my second thought was where can I get money to get pills so that I can just make it through another day with a clear head and I'll come up with a plan for tomorrow. And tomorrow never came. And so once I took the guns, he called the police because somebody broke into our house. And as they investigated, they eventually came to the conclusion that it was me and I was um, taken to jail. Two and a half years, you date this man, you're in love, you're raising a puppy dog, you're playing the role. Mm -hmm. And this is a guy whose eyes are wide open and isn't able to see what is directly in front of him. So many of my friends who've had an addictive family member, whether it was a spouse or a partner or a child, shares a very similar story of not knowing what was happening right under their own roof. Mm -hmm. For those of us right now who um, have some anxiety around, gosh, are you saying this could happen in my world? Would you speak to them just for a moment? Like, uh, is this a main street story? Could this happen anywhere? Absolutely. I, the signs were there. He had even found some of my equipment. Um, I think, and I'm not 100% sure, but I think that when you love someone so much, you kind of put blinders on and there, you don't want to believe it, so you justify it away. And so to those people who might be thinking, that this is happening. If you feel in your gut that somebody that you love has a problem, um, don't turn a blind eye. Look a little closer. Ask the questions. It's always amazing to me after I got clean, I found out apparently my whole entire family knew, but nobody said anything to me because they didn't want to make me upset or make me stop talking to them, which is probably exactly what would have happened. Um, I, but I thought I was getting away with it the whole time. I had no idea. And I often wonder, you know, what would be different if somebody had said something to me, if they were on to me, you know, I don't know, and I'm not blaming them by any means, but I think that it's always important to keep your eyes open. Well, this man you dated and loved is finally on to you because his entire staff is on to you. Tell us what happens then. Yeah, it was so heartbreaking, really. For him, he had no idea until his supervisor said, you know, we've been investigating and, and this is what we found and presented him with all the evidence. And he was devastated and they said, we have to go arrest her. And they woke me up out of bed and took me to jail. It was the people who I had been friends with for a while. I've known these people. And suddenly I went from being this deputy's girlfriend to a junkie criminal being walked through the jail. Mm. And it, it was so crazy to see the people who used to look at me with like friendly eyes now looking at me with such anger and disappointment. And so um, I was charged with a lot of felonies and I ended up spending 120 days in jail. So as a speaker and author, I've been in prison several times to support those who live there temporarily. You had the experience of being on the other side and not getting out. There was no buzz for Tiffany to exit at the end of a couple hour session. What is it like the first night that you get buzzed in and you aren't gonna get buzzed out? It, for me, it was, it was too much. 
it was too much. I was taken to medical because I was withdrawing from drugs and I was very sick and they had to monitor me. And I couldn't sleep. But even if I did drift off to sleep, I was like ripped awake by the slamming of those loud, heavy doors. And it, for a moment, reality would set in. And it's like, wait a minute, you're not in your bed at home. You're in jail. You are in jail. You have committed crimes and you are in jail. Like when just yesterday I was watching Dr. Phil and snuggling with my puppy today, I'm wearing a jumpsuit in a jail cell. And by night three, it was like too much, the pain, both physically and mentally. Um, and so I ended up trying to take my own life. And if I'm speaking completely honestly, um, I, it's not like I wanted to die. I felt like I had to. Like I had to. There was no choice. I could not bear another moment of the pain. I couldn't bear what the future might have had in store for me. I could not, um, I wasn't strong enough to deal with the consequences of my actions, whatever they may be. And I also knew that it wouldn't be possible for me to live a life without drugs. And so I tried to end my life. And if it was up to me, I would not be here, but there was something bigger at work, I guess, because um, I was found and saved and taken back to medical, um, which was humiliating because when you try to end your life in jail, they take all your clothes. If you wear glasses, which I did, they take those and they put you in a Velcro suit and put you in a glass room yeah. so that they can keep an eye on you and you can't hurt yourself. And that is where I finished my detox in what felt like a, like an aquarium, you know, people just walking by and peering in at me, twisting on the ground in pain. It was, it was horrible, but I, you know, I put myself there. So I couldn't be mad at anyone else. It was me. I did it. And that was the worst part is when there's nobody to be angry at other than yourself. How do you internalize that? As you are in this aquarium in a Velcro suit, the glasses are off. You can't even see. People are yeah. watching you. You're physically convulsing because you badly need something you can no longer get. You're stuck in prison. You betrayed your boyfriend of two and a half years. And I'm not trying to bring up anything you're not already living with every single day, but like yeah, you exactly. are at the bottom of the barrel, man. And it's, there's more weight coming at you than you can bear. Yeah. How do you internalize that? How do you, how do you breathe? I, it was, it was difficult. I begged the officers to tase me to death. I mean, I was at the window, like a rabid animal. I was screaming, please end it. I'm right. begging you. Like, I will not be mad, you know, just, and there, but there's nothing you can do. There's nothing that you can do other than scream and twist in pain. That's all I did. I felt like they were probably making fun of me because how much I was moving, but I mean, when you're in that setting and you know there's no escape, you know there's no way to get drugs, it makes it in a weird way a little easier to cope than had the door been open and I had access to my dealer's house because I would have run straight there, which is why I think it's hard for a lot of people to, to want to stop because that pain of withdrawal is so painful. And when you have a choice, sometimes your own willpower isn't enough. You have some people who show up for you. Uh, some on purpose, some by chance. I believe one of the heroes of the book is is Katie. Yes. 
Talk about Katie. I wasn't sure I got the name right, but uh, it's an amazing coincidence. Talk about Katie. Her, the name changed a couple of times in the book because I self-published it myself in 2017 on yeah, Amazon so and then it was picked up and it changed. Um, but yes, it was very trippy because while I was in there, um, I had a visit from, it was like a, a psych person and I recognized the voice and it was somebody who I used to coach in cheerleading. <laughs> and it was embarrassing for her to see me like this because there was a point when she looked up to me but it was also the first time that I was talked to like I was a human being and not like an animal and that was really sweet and nice and I really needed that at that moment I needed like a reminder of who I was before all of this and she gave me that at that time and I don't think I talked about her again in the book, but we are still friends now. Um, my father was the real turning point. Yeah. I spent um, Christmas in jail and it was really hard because I just thought about my childhood and stuff and what it was like with my family and my sister and how Christmases used to be and how different this one was. And uh, my father came to visit me and it was the first visitor that I had. And he told me that he had been diagnosed with cancer, yeah, which was so sad. But then he said that the doctor told him he had to stop drinking if he wanted to prolong his life. So at the time he came to visit, he had like 62 days sober. Um, and that was, or 32 days I haven't had coffee yet, but he had been sober while I had been in jail. And I was like, that's incredible because my whole life he had drank and he was in and out. And he said, you need to get it together and get out of here so that we can take this recovery journey together as a family. Mm. And he said, I'll always love you no matter what. There's nothing you can do to make me stop loving you. And I have faith in you and I know you and I know you can do this. And having somebody believe in me and love me when I didn't believe in or love myself yes. was what I needed to fight for my life. And so I made the decision to go to rehab after jail. So you and I are in my office and in front of the camera are all the guests that I've had the honor of interviewing. Your picture will go up there next. Aww. Behind me are my family members, the ones that I work for. And then over to your right, are people throughout history that I look up to and wish I was a lot more like. And then there's this one oil painted on the, on the top right side of the wall of the return of the prodigal son. And it's this dad who is just loving this addicted, broken, lousy, miserable, swindling, and every other word under the, under the sun, son, and forgiving him and loving him and showering him with grace and changing that little boy's life. And I, I think that gift of grace and redemptive love is beautiful to have up on a wall but when you are in a prison on Christmas morning and you are experiencing it firsthand from your dad, from the guy who wasn't always there for you, but he's committing to be there for you now. I'm just curious, how, how did that begin to change you? Um, it's making me, I, I talk about this all the time and it never makes me emotional. And I don't know why it's making me emotional. Sorry. Um. <clears throat> It began to change me because for the first time I felt like maybe a life after addiction was possible. Yeah. It made me feel like my life was worth living. And so 
it gave me the desire to seek the help. And when the judge came back and said, you have two options, you can stay in jail for six months and have three years probation, or you could stay in jail for four months, go to rehab for six months, and then have three years probation. I knew which one I would be the easiest, but I also knew that my problems were going to follow me everywhere that I went because they were in my brain and I needed to fix it in order to not return to jail. You can keep me caged away from my drugs all you want, but unless we fix my brain, I'll I'll be right back here. And so um, I made the decision to go to rehab and I went directly from the jail to the rehab. My dad visited me on Sundays and I ended up working really hard in rehab this time. I wanted it. Yeah. And so I wasn't arguing. I listened in class. I took notes. I wasn't worrying about who was dating who. Um, I just focused on myself. And eventually I graduated and I was able to get my one year medallion. And in, in that moment, I turned around and I was able to give my dad his one year medallion this, the very same time. And it was um, one of the greatest memories of my life. I saw that video and it's, it's you know, I'm assuming we're all addicted to something. I, I am not addicted to drugs or alcohol, although I have many friends who've sat in that room at that circle and been loved and embraced and accepted regardless of what they've done in the past. It's, yeah. it's an amazing room to be invited into. You've been there. You've received the medallion. That's one piece that changed your life. Is another is finding out that you were pregnant. Huh. So talk about that experience. And, uh, <laughs> You know, I think for all of us who end up having kids, oh man, it's a life-changing event. But for you in particular, it was a world-changing experience. Talk about finding out you were expecting. Okay. I, you know what? I had a vision in my head when I was a little kid of what it was going to look like. And (laughs) it was not this. I was um, in a halfway house. I was living in a halfway house and I had no job and no car. Um, I was living with six other women and I was dating a guy from a halfway house down the street, which is not really a good idea generally. Um, And we had been dating for two months when I got an overnight pass to his halfway house. You know, we don't need to go into detail, but a couple of weeks later I found out that I was pregnant while living in a half. I, I borrowed a dollar from a friend and walked to the dollar store to get a pregnancy test. Like this is how poor I was. (laughs) And I was shocked and like, shocked because it was a one-time thing. And so I was like, there's no way that this is happening. And I went to talk to him and he was super excited. And I was very confused at why he was so excited because he had a two-year-old who he had yet to be um, a regular in her life. And he hardly knew me and we had nothing to offer this child. Um, but we had this like weird blind faith. I don't know how to explain it. It was like, we just had a feeling that everything was going to be okay. And suddenly like with his excitement, I wanted this child more than anything. And I had never been one to want children until it was happening. And so we both worked really hard. Uh, We ended up getting married five months after meeting each other in my backyard in front of his super confused family. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My dad was able to walk me down the aisle and we saved up enough money to get an apartment. And my son was born on my birthday. 
which was so crazy and which I thought was cool in like a cosmic way, but also like he had a lot of days to choose from and he came out online. So my <laughs> birthdays have never been the same, but it was, it was the coolest gift I'd ever been given. And when he was six months old, I found out that I was pregnant again. And my daughter was born 16 months after my son. And then two weeks after she came home, his bonus daughter from the previous relationship came to live with us full time. And like things escalated really quickly. So I'm suddenly a married mom of three when just two years ago I was single in a halfway house. But I was grateful and I was clean and sober. And um, I got to, before my daughter was born, my father did end up passing away. But I got to create some really, like I would have taken the small amount of time that we had together sober. Yes over the lifetime that we had before that, because we made more meaningful memories in the short time than we ever had before. And I'm so grateful to him um, and his life and the way he turned it around at the end to save me. That's not why he did it, but that's what happened. He saved me. There are so many stories that begin like yours did that end up in a dramatically different place than yours is currently being lived. That you have the bonus baby, you have the happy family, you've got your husband, you've got a house, we'll get here in a moment, but you've got an amazing career right now, like gangbusters, massive millions of followers. That's not the story of most addicts. Yeah. So to what do you attribute the redemption aspect of this journey? Um, I, first of all, if it was up to me, I wouldn't be here. So I have a hard, I, I can take very little credit for where I am. Um, I believe that there was definitely a, a higher power working in my life, orchestrating this for me. I also think that people in recovery who came before me and were willing to love me and teach me how to live clean without expecting anything in return, um, yeah. definitely are have something, have mostly everything to do with why I am where I am. But I think as far as like the career and the house and all this craziness that has come from it, um, I think that a willingness to take what has been given to me for free and help others with it. I, at the time when I started making videos everywhere, I looked on the internet, everything looked perfect. And I was comparing myself to it and I felt like a failure and I think that most of the news stories depicted horrible things happening with addiction and it was all depressing and all unhappy endings and um, not many people were talking about it. And so I, I decided to very nervously, not sure what I would be met with hmm. and was amazed at the response that I got, shocked. So let's just talk about that journey again. My, my first journey into social media, if you will, or into this career that I've now fallen head over heels for speaking and writing and podcasting and everything else was in front of three Girl Scouts in St. Louis County. They were third graders and they yawned the entire 11 minutes I spoke down at them. So that, that, that was the beginning of the John O'Leary train, man. We left the station and no one even noticed that we were in the station in the first place. That's where it began. <laughs> but you never forget the first. And so the very first time you're looking out, out there for hope and inspiration, you're married, you're struggling, you're tired, you got three kids in diapers. It's madness. And you don't see truth anywhere. You don't see any version of the life you were living anywhere. Yeah. Talk about the first time you, uh, you put your truth online. Like what, what did you write about? What was the video about? And what was the reception to it? I 
started with writing yep. first. And I shared, I think the very first writing of mine that ever went viral was I'm Tiffany and I'm an addict. It was the title of it. And it was a before picture of me and an after picture of me. And I just wrote my truth and I wrote what it feels like to be an addict so that other people could have an idea. Um, and it started getting shared everywhere. And I made vid I started going live and making videos with my hair a mess, no makeup, <laughs> just telling the truth about, you know, having kids in diapers and what a how tough it was and how I was not perfect and I had not brushed my hair in a long time. And I just, I remember thinking if I could just make one other person feel okay with where they're at, that will make me feel good. Yeah. Because I was actually in a depression after all of this happened. You'd think, you know, oh, she's got kids and life is great. But I was like, I don't know how to live after addiction. And now I'm in charge of three people. <laughs> And it did, it sent me into a depression. So I went to a doctor and I got help and I decided to share what I had learned since getting help with other people. But people were like, thank you so much for putting your real face without makeup out there because it makes me feel okay with where I'm at. It makes me feel okay that I haven't changed my clothes in two days. It makes me feel okay that my house is a mess. And then I realized there's a, there's a need for this. And you see it all the time now, probably. It's much more common to show the truth about motherhood. It's like what everybody's doing. And that's all, if that would have been around in the beginning, my life, it probably would have been completely different. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for the first time in my life, I was being accepted for who I was, the truth. Like not pretending, no makeup, no facade, just me and all my messy, loud, weird glory. I was being accepted without drugs. I was okay with myself. Um, because I was accepted. Tiffany, how much thought goes into your videos? How much of it is you grab the phone and you rock and roll versus you spend some time at the whiteboard and you're kind of drafting these things out? The video, I've tried to do the whole whiteboard drafting thing and I'm not kidding. The videos that I put the most effort into and most time into, they flop. Yeah. But it's the video ideas that I get in the middle of the night and then I wake up and I record them in my closet that go crazy. <laughs> And I think it's because people just want, they want genuine, real mm -hmm. authenticity, you know? And so there are, I text myself most of the time when I get an idea, it's at night when I'm laying awake and obsessing about my life. And I just text myself ideas. And then before you know it, I'll have a whole script texted. And then the next day I'll just get up and act out the parts. You've got millions of followers. You've received countless thousands of letters and posts and notes. Is there one story? I know it's hard to pick one, but is there one story whether it's from an addict or a survivor or someone who lost a child or just some, a mom or dad, a leader who follows you and they shared something with you that you remember you, you want to share with our audience, a favorite story. A favorite. It, you're, it is hard to pick because I get emails like that every day and it's not to brag. It's just to say like, I, I remember nearly every single story. I'd say the one that means the most, there's a girl who I guess found my videos when she was detoxing on day one. And I, I guess by me being myself and living my life, it showed her that it was possible for her and it gave her the hope that she needed. And every single week she emails me and updates me. She's like, Hey, just hit a year clean. Wanted you to know just hit a year and a half. She's got two years clean now. And she just updates me and 
tries to give me the credit, you know, but I'm like, listen, it was you, you did it. But I get messages like that all the time. You gave me the strength to ask for help. I was able to uh, put somebody through rehab and help that person with their bills and stuff. And that person updates me as well and keeps me posted. But there's, there's so many that I could go on all day. And again, it's not in a way to brag. It's just to say that anybody who's, if you're listening to this and you have sent me an email and stuff, I remember it. It means everything to me. And have you heard the starfish poem? Walking along the beach. One. Yeah. Yeah. That's my, that kind of is my MO for life as well. Like, no, I don't think you can change 7.6 billion lives, but you change that one girl. Whether you want to admit that or not, Tiffany, you change one girl. And if you can do that a couple more times and then you can start scaling that change, man, that is a good life. Painful to get to where you are, but that is a good life. Yeah, it is. And I keep that poem pinned above um, my desk because I was having a hard time responding to everybody's emails and I felt like I was failing them and I wanted them all to know how special and loved and wonderful they were. And my one of my supporters was like, look at this poem. And it's so true. If I, Even if I don't want to respond to everybody's emails, instead of just shutting off and going, I can't do this. If I respond to one and that person feels loved and seen and understood, yes, I'm done. Like that's it. I, I did so many bad things and I stole from so many people and broke so many people's hearts and made so many poor decisions that the ability to be given a second chance to redeem myself and try to put as much good out there as I can is the greatest gift of my life. And I'm, I'm so grateful every day and I never lose that gratitude um, because it's so important to keep that. For years, you were the little girl that was faking it to fit in, acting as if you were the captain of the cheerleader when you felt as if you didn't belong, even in the school. When you look in the mirror today, and uh, finally you shoo the kids away, so you have a few minutes to yourself to glance at yourself, what do you see staring back at you? What do, what do you feel? What do you think? Um, I, I'd love to lie and say that I'm 100% in love with myself and I love who I am. Um, I'm, I still struggle. I have a lot to learn, but I see somebody who is incredibly self-aware and somebody who's very in touch with her feelings and her emotion and knows when it's time to ask for help, knows when it's time to take a step back, knows when it's time to love herself a little bit more. And that is the best thing, honestly, at this point, because um, it's a way to not let my emotions control me which is what I spent my whole life doing. Now I, I look at myself and I'm like, hey, you're sober and you're making a difference and you're a great mom, you're a decent wife and you probably need some rest. So take it easy on yourself today. And um, I am, I'm, I, I like who I am and I'm working on, on loving who I am. When you're in the public eye, it's easy to let people and their comments get to you. And I'm working really hard on being okay with who I am and not being such a people pleaser. It's something that I struggle with so bad. We had a a speech given last week where there was 168 positive comments. There were three negative comments. And one of them was about the platform they used. Not not my choice, in other words. But I, I think it's such human nature rather than seeing all the good around us. And by the way, in our lifetimes, there is so much good. We, for whatever reason, choose to let our attention glance off to the left or the right and see the few little things that are out of place. And so uh, what you're saying here 
is what we all are wrestling with every day in our careers, with our families, in our singleness, with our addictions, with our sobriety, whatever it is, we're, we, we so frequently focus on the things we don't have or who we're not quite yet. So I'm just, I'm grateful for your honesty because I think that is why you have millions of people that turn towards you and say, hey, keep it coming, keep the inspiration coming out there. So uh, just a couple of questions as we move toward the Live, in, live Inspired 7, Tiffany, before we get there. Okay. One question is, what, would you, what, what advice would you give for someone who currently is addicted to whatever that thing might be, but they currently are in the midst of an, an addiction? Um, reaching out for help was the greatest gift that I ever gave my future self. Um, I had no way of knowing back when I was in jail, trying to end my life, I had no way of knowing how amazing my life was going to get. And if you had asked me back then what my future looked like, I would have just said dark, but it's more beautiful than I could have ever dreamed. So even if you can't see it now, yeah. you have to keep going. You have to reach out for help, accept the help and have faith that an incredible life is waiting for you because a life after addiction is possible. And there's no such thing as a lost cause. Mm. Doesn't sound like that's the first time you shared that advice. It's great. It's so the, the same the, advice every time. <laughs> well, get ready for more. Just go back to the Rolodex for this one. Many of our listeners, we have listeners tuning in from more than 60 countries. <gasps> Many of them are parenting someone or grandparenting someone with an addiction. What advice would you give to someone who loves someone with, with an addiction right now? Yes. Uh, first of all, learn boundaries for yourself. There's a very thin line between loving and enabling. And I think that it's hard to decipher that line. There's an incredible resource out there. It's nar-anon.org. And it has tons of resources for loved ones of addicts that teaches you what enabling might look like, what to do, what not to do. There's even groups for loved ones of addicts where you can sit in a room and listen to what other people are doing. But nobody is born knowing how to navigate the waters of loving an addict. So you have to learn and that takes education and willingness. Um, but you know, the guilt is real and there's nothing that you can do or say that is going to make us change. Like I know so many people who love addicts feel like it's their fault or there's more they could have done. There's not, it's not you. My dad was a cop. He did this for a living and there was nothing he could say to make me not be an addict. So just education is huge and there's tons of resources out there. Tiffany Jenkins, we have seven questions that we tether forward all of our guests together with. And question number one is this, what is the best book besides High Achiever that you've ever read? I love the book, The Five People You Meet in Heaven by Mitch. Yeah, I love that book. It's so interesting how everything's intertwined. It was the first book that I ever actually sat down and thought about for weeks and weeks afterward. Yeah. So we've had him on the podcast as well. And like <gasps> you not only that guy, the author, but that story, this idea of, of profoundly touching lives and you may not even actually physically meet them this side of eternity, but exactly. eventually they'll be one of the guys you meet and they'll come up and give you a big hug and you won't even know why they're hugging you. So yes! like, they become part of many, as many of those hugs as possible as part of what drives me forward. And it yes. clearly sounds like you as well. Yes. What, what's one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a little girl that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Mm. Um, I think the, probably the ability to see the good in everybody. Hmm. I believed everybody was good when I was a little kid. And then once I went through my addiction, I got to see the true dark nature of life. And so I'm getting better at it. But um, I wish that I could give people the benefit of the doubt more, probably. It's something that I'm working on. Cool. 
if your home caught fire and those three babies and your spouse are out safe, all your animals are out safe and you have an, have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, one, one. Thing, what would you grab? Just one Kids thing. are out. Mm, I would, I'd grab my dad's ashes, which is ironic because they're already ash, but <laughs> I, it's between that and family pictures, but I've taken pictures of the pictures. So I have those digitally. So probably my dad, I'd go grab his ashes. This, this is question 3B. What, what do you think your dad, as he sits wherever he is in your home right now, observing this girl, his baby, and these grandkids of his, what do you think your dad thinks about the life that uh, this former troublemaker has become? I think, I think he's thrilled. And I think that he's so grateful and um, proud. He, he bought me a typewriter when I was a little kid and he used to bring me poem books all the time. And he's the one who taught me that it's okay to be unique and weird and goofy. Yeah. And I attribute so much of my writing and my art and my acting and my silly side to him constantly. It's my mom that I'm wondering. I'm not sure what she thinks. She passed away when I was like in the midst of my addiction. So I hope she gets to see this. And I hope she's laughing as she watches me try to parent because she was <laughs> literally right about everything. And she was gone before I had the chance to tell her and say, sorry, you're an amazing mom. And I get it now. Well, she'll be one of the five. I have every confidence you will uh, be able to meet. So uh, question number four, if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, who would you love to be seated right next to? My mom. Awesome. What's the best advice mom or anybody else ever gave you? Um, my mother told me to stop meeting my problems halfway and wait for them to come all the way to me. And I think of that often when I start projecting and obsessing about things that haven't happened yet. And my father told me to look down at my feet whenever I start feeling crazy because wherever my feet are is the only place and only moment that matters because the next one isn't promised. Perfect. What would you tell your 20 year old self? That's such a tricky question because I wouldn't want to change a single thing. So I'm afraid that by telling myself something, it would have changed the way things turned out. Just give her a hug and tell her she's loved and maybe tell her to go hug her mom a couple more times. That's perfect. The final question, my friend, is it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Um, it probably that it didn't play out the way I thought it would. And that ended up being the greatest blessing of all. Tiffany Jake, it, it may not have ended up the way anybody thought it would, but it has been a mighty blessing. It's really been a blast to have you on our show and to read your book, to learn about your journey and to follow you online. What, what a journey. And I am convinced your best days are in front of you. Oh, thank you so much. It's been an honor. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much. My friends, that is Tiffany Jenkins. I am John O'Leary and today is your day. Live Inspired. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies builds communities with the power of one. Six distinct brands come together as one single source for construction, infrastructure, technology, wireless, logistics, and development solutions. Their true differentiator is building people within communities through their world-class culture focused on safety, education, community service, wellness, and inclusion, all using 
their unique strategic process to achieve results on purpose, lovingly called the Keeley Way. Keeley Companies is beyond proud to sponsor the Live Inspired podcast and aligns with a vision of making the world a better place.